Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called A Season of Difficult Hope. It's a guest essay by Art Amon, the former director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. In the summer of 1981, Dr. Amon cared for a woman who was a prostitute and intravenous drug user and three of her children. All four people presented with unusual deficiencies in their immune systems that were aggravated by opportunistic infections that did not fit normal medical models of disease. He determined that the mother and all three children had contracted AIDS. A tragic diagnosis because the disease was at that time fatal. Perhaps, perhaps equally devastating was the disturbing conclusion, hotly contested and very controversial at the time, that HIV-AIDS was not limited to adults. Amon determined that HIV had passed from the mother to her children as an acquired and not an inherited disease. In 1982, he thus documented the first cases of AIDS transmission from mother to infant, and also the first blood transfusion AIDS patients. In 1998, Amon founded Global Strategies for HIV Prevention, where today he ministers around the world. With a special focus on women and children, Global Strategies implements international strategies to prevent HIV infection and to work towards a generation free of HIV. Art's essay, A Season of Difficult Hope, is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, December the 2nd, 2012, the first Sunday in Advent. The Old Testament readings for the beginning of Advent this week coincide with World AIDS Day on December 1st. They are potent reminders of the promises of God to the house of Israel. We read in Jeremiah, I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will live in safety. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. The promise is directed to a community of God's people. Similarly, the words in Psalm 25 begin with a personal plea to God for protection from personal enemies, and end with a plea for personal forgiveness. My God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For your goodness' sake, O Lord. The focus of the New Testament readings shift and imply that our intense earthly suffering is a prelude to the rescue that God will provide for the faithful. Be alert at all times, we read, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things that will take place 
and to stand before the Son of Man. As I travel through some of the poorest and most violent countries in the world, and hear the pleas articulated by those who suffer intensely, I feel that they are also coupled with a sense of self-vulnerability before God. Their voices echo the scriptural pleas and promises that we read in this year's Advent Meditations. For the last several years, my friend Dan Clendenin has asked me to contribute an essay for World AIDS Day at this time of Advent. This year, I thought about what I might say even before receiving his request. While reading Wendell Berry's book of essays, What Are People For?, I came upon a poem by the title of A Poem of Difficult Hope by Haydn Carruth that Berry had included in his own book. Carruth had been asked to write a poem against the war in Vietnam. He hesitated, but then wrote one anyway. Upon reading Karras' poem, I felt an immediate sympathy, realizing that I, too, was having difficulty in writing a commentary about the pain and suffering of HIV because I had written about it so many times before, and the pain and suffering was still there. Here's the poem by Karras. Well, I have, and in fact more than one, and I'll tell you this, too. I wrote one against Algeria, that nightmare, and against another, Korea, and another against the one I was in, and I don't remember how many against the three when I was a boy, Abyssinia, Spain, and Harlan County, and not one breath was restored to one shattered throat, man's, woman's, or child's. Not one, not one, but death went on and on, never looking aside, except now and then with a furtive half-smile to make sure I was noticing. I haven't written any poems, but I've written many narratives about an epidemic that seems so perverse and persistent, with the horror of HIV taking a special toll on defenseless women and children. Surely God would hear their pleas, I often thought. But I don't pretend to understand these things. I only know that in spite of the intensity of the pain and suffering, the people I met could only endure with a belief and hope in God. As I continue to labor in this area and see and hear these people who suffer from a dreadful disease while they wait for God to intervene, I wonder... Perhaps God is waiting for us who believe in him to intervene on his behalf. A guest essay by Art Amon. For books this week, I review a new volume by Robert Kaplan. The title, The Revenge of Geography, what the map tells us about coming conflicts in the battle against fate. New York, Random, 2012, 407 pages. For the last 30 years, Robert Kaplan has wandered the world as a foreign correspondent. Many of his books have been regional studies, like Balkan Ghosts, Surrender or Starve, about Ethiopia, 
were soldiers of God about Afghanistan and Pakistan. His newest book, though, offers an explanatory thesis for the whole history of the whole world. In particular, he's interested in the role of geography in the unfolding of history. The artificial maps of cartography can be very misleading. Geography, with its empirical logic, is the best predictor of where human history is going. Kaplan rejects geographical determinism. Geography does not dictate destiny. Human agency can alter geography, like the Ataturk Dam or the Panama Canal. The Internet, with its disruptive technologies, has erased some of the strictures of time and space. He writes, I'm not talking here of an implacable force against which humankind is powerless. Rather, I wish to argue for a modest acceptance of fate, secured ultimately in the facts of geography, in order to curb excessive zeal in foreign policy, a zeal of which I myself have been guilty. Artificial borders like the Wall in Israel or the DMZ of the Koreas that don't match the natural features of geography are especially vulnerable. The power of geography to explain the flow of history leads to a realist stance in foreign policy. Realism respects geography. It is heartless and pragmatic, wary of idealistic intervention. Realism has a tragic sensibility. The realist warns, don't ever say things cannot get much worse than they are, because they can. Saddam Hussein and Hosni Mubarak were horrible dictators, but who knows what comes next now that they're gone. Thus Kaplan favors realists like Kissinger and Scowcroft against idealists like Fukuyama and Friedman's idea of a globalized world that flattens geography. In the brutal world of the realists, the search for power is not made for the achievement of moral values. Moral values are used to facilitate the attainment of power. After describing the power of geography to shape history, Kaplan examines six hotspots of our 21st century map. Separate chapters explore Europe, Russia, China, India, Iran, and Turkey. A final chapter offers a counterintuitive thesis about America. Building on an insight of Andrew Basevich, Kaplan argues that geography would dictate that Mexico should be our highest foreign policy concern. Most important of all, geography should warn America about any sense of exceptionalism. There is no special providence for Americans, wrote John Adams, and their nature is the same as that of others. The author is Robert Kaplan. The title, The Revenge of Geography. For film this week, we travel to Jamaica in a documentary movie called Marley from the year 2011. Bob Marley who lived from 1945 to 1981, was born in the remote hills of Jamaica of a British white man and a Jamaican woman. 
He grew up in a shack with no water or electricity and knew what real and regular hunger meant. By the time he died of cancer at the age of 36, he was the global icon of reggae music, famous for his long dreadlocks, heavy use of marijuana, and ardent Rastafarian faith. This documentary film about his life and music is long at two and a half hours, but it held my interest. It draws upon virtually everyone who was close to Marley, including family, band members, managers, producers, and even the president of Jamaica. Uncomfortable truths are mentioned, but not explored, like his 11 children by seven women, his drug use, and the fights over his money after his death. Still, Bob Marley's lyrics of social and political justice live on. As you would expect, this film and soundtrack take full advantage of his music and archival footage of his concerts. I watched this film on Netflix streaming. The title of the film, Marley. For poetry this week, and the first Sunday in Advent, we've posted a poem by John Betjeman, who lived from 1906 to 1984. It's called Christmas. The bells of waiting Advent ring. The tortoise stove is lit again, and lamp oil light across the night has caught the streaks of winter rain. In many a stained glass window sheen from crimson lake to hooker's green. The holly in the windy hedge and round the manor house the yew will soon be stripped to deck the ledge, the altar, font, and arch and pew, so that the villagers can say the church looks nice on Christmas Day. Provincial public houses blaze, corporation tramcars clang. On lighted tenements I gaze where paper decorations hang, and bunting in the red town hall says Merry Christmas to you all. And London shops on Christmas Eve are strung with silver bells and flowers, as hurrying clerks the city leave to pigeon-haunted classic towers, and marbled clouds go scudding by the many steepled London sky. And girls in slacks remember dad, and oafish louts remember mom. And sleepless, sleepless children's hearts are glad, and Christmas morning bells say come. Even to shining ones who dwell safe in the Dorchester Hotel. And is it true, this most tremendous tale of all, seen in a stained glass window's hue, a baby in an ox's stall? the maker of the stars and sea, become a child on earth for me. And is it true? For if it is, no loving fingers tying strings around those tissued fripperies, the sweet and silly Christmas things, bath salts and expensive scent and hideous tie so kindly meant. No love that in a family dwells, no caroling in frosty air, nor all the steeple-shaking bells can with this single truth compare. 
that God was man in Palestine and lives today in bread and wine. John Betjeman, Christmas. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, December the 2nd, the first Sunday in Advent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.